Hey guys, welcome to the Fieldcraft Survival Podcast. I am your podcast host for this iteration, and I am telling you, this is going to be a fantastic discussion. If you guys are into anything related to the hunting world, anything related to anti-poaching, anything related to all things badass South African, uh, wait until you hear this one. Uh, before we jump into this podcast, I want to give a big shout out to our number one sponsor, and that is Black Rifle Coffee. Our good friends over at Black Rifle Coffee in Salt Lake City, uh, they supply us with all the coffee that keeps us going. Uh, they supply us with all the ready-to-drink beverages, which, by the way, oh yeah, there we go. Uh, I got a ready-to-drink coffee right here. So uh, I'm just going to give them a, a big shout out. Please check them out, blackriflecoffee.com. Check them out on Instagram. Check them out on Twitter. All the socials, you know what to do. Uh, Evan Hafer and the boys over there, great, great people. Uh, they produce a phenomenal coffee product and also some pretty damn funny uh, videos with, you know, putting mini guns and, you know, Priuses and things like that. So please give them a, a follow. Please support them. They're a great veteran owned business. Guys, on this podcast, uh, I have Robbie Kroger. And Robbie is the CEO, founder. He is the executive director. He wears a lot of different hats for Blood Origins. And if you're not familiar with this company, it's really interesting. But in addition to talking about his company, we're going to talk about some of the hunting and some of the unique aspects of where he is. I was told by Mike Glover that uh, I'm supposed to give him crap about tree stand hunting, but I don't know if I really can do that considering I've done it in, <laughs> yeah, I've done it in the, in the Northeast myself. And, uh, you know, I'll try to tread lightly on that one. So without further ado, uh, this is Robbie Kroger of blood origins. Robbie, how are you, my friend? I'm better than I deserve, Kevin. And uh, the reason Mike is telling you to give me crap about st uh, tree stand hunting is because I gave him crap about it because he said it wasn't fair. He said tree stand hunting isn't fair. And I said, it wasn't a challenge. And I said, I said, Mike, that it, it all comes back to what you believe a hunt and a hunt experience is. You're not looking down your nose at a tree stand hunter, are you, Mike? <laughs> and to that, he said, no, I'm, I'm not. It's just not my cup of tea. And I said, that's okay. It's okay that it's not your cup of tea. Uh, but we shouldn't, as a hunting community, look down on something just because it doesn't fit with our personal ethos of why we, we hunt the way that we hunt. It's one of the cancers that are in, is inside of hunting. And hopefully, uh, you know, people start seeing that for what it is. Uh, but unfortunately, I think the competitiveness of hunters is is always going to shine and, and people are going to uh, have issues with different styles of hunts and different weapons and that kind of stuff. And man, you, you called it for what it is. It really is a cancer because in the industry, I mean, there are folks that look down upon Western hunters. You know, they say, oh, you guys play the long ball, right? You know, you're shooting at animals that are 500 yards away and you're not hunting at that point you're shooting. Right. And I've, I've right. been guilty of saying that myself, too. Because I grew up in the Northeast, right? I grew up in thick woods where, no exaggeration, before I started for Fieldcraft, the last hunting season I had out there, I shot a uh, white-tailed doe at about 30 yards during archery season. And then I shot a, uh, a white-tailed buck during rifle private landowner season at about 15 yards, right? So mm -hmm. we don't really get the, the, the same game that they have out here. But as you mentioned it, I mean, it's the same reason why people are afraid to join the ranks of hunters because they're worried that they're going to be talked down on. They're worried that someone is mm -hmm. going to poo poo them. And I mean, if anything, mm -hmm. there are enough anti hunters out there to do that for us. And we oh, can man. be our own worst enemy. 
Oh, yeah. The anti-hunters are sitting back, popping popcorn, kicking their feet up, watching us tear each other apart, unfortunately. Yeah. Um, and that is just, it's sad, um, but it's a reality that we just have to embrace. And, you know, hopefully things like, like what we do through Blood Origins is really, you know, we, just, we just speak differently, Kevin. We just mm. engage differently. We've been called gentlemen in terms of how we speak with people and how we even speak with the antsies when they call us MFers and, and all sorts of things. And I think it's a little, it's almost, it's not peer pressure. It's just, you almost look to people to say, well, how are these guys going to act and how are they going to react and how are they going to engage and how are they going to speak? And when they watch us, they're like, oh, maybe, maybe we should be a little bit more like that. And, um, and I, you know, I, it, it served us well. Um, we don't nearly get the amount of hate from the anti-hunting crowd that we should, right? We're a big non-profit that is pro-hunting, that is conveying the truth about hunting every single day. But the way that we convey the truth is very authentic, is full of integrity, and is, is almost gray, right? We're not beating our chest, yelling from the rooftops that we're this, you know, hunting community and just leave us, leave us be, let us do what we do because it's our right to be able to do what we do. I'll tell you the anti hunters. I, I've never, thankfully I've never come across an anti hunter personally. Years ago, I sat on the conservation advisory council in my, my home state. And I used to hear stories of hunters that would get into these altercations and mm -hmm. it was deliberate baiting. It was baiting for social 100%. media. And, you know, the worst thing that we can do is to buy into the nonsense that, you know, if you see someone in the, in the woods and they're holding a camera, they want that reaction. But mm -hmm. what's few and far between is that concept that you just mentioned, that gentleman hunter that says, let's have a conversation. You know, let's really talk about why you don't like this. And let's talk about why I like this. Let's try to find some middle ground. I get it. There are a lot of people out there that don't like hunting. And I know that with, even within hunting crowds, there are people that are like, why are you posing next to the animal that you shot if you're just a meat eater? You know what I mean? Like, mm -hmm. I, it's so bizarre, the world that we live in. Um, but I think it's really important that the, the common thread that we all have as hunters is education, right? We have to pass mm -hmm. it on and we may convince some of the antis. We may pull them a little bit our way. They might even say, I still oppose it, but now I only oppose it with these certain exceptions, right? right. I, We're not trying to convince them, Kevin. We're not trying yeah. to convince them to become hunters. We're just saying we actually want the same thing. We want healthy, sustainable wildlife. Mm -hmm. We just have two ways. We have just two different ways to get there. And when you sit down in a conversation space in which you put your opinion across, they put their opinion across and you still disagree. But, you know, from an anti-hunting perspective or non-hunting perspective, you may not like what we do, but it's undeniable the benefits and the consequences as a result of the action that is hunting. Right. And that's something that we need to communicate as, as often and as hard as we possibly can communicate. Yeah, I think I think I've told the story before, uh, you know, growing up in Connecticut, we've got the Merritt Parkway. It is one of the most heavily trafficked roads in the entire state. And it also is uh, a roadway, an artery that kind of cuts right through the most heavily populated by whitetail county in the entire state. 
there were politicians that said we need to come up with a six foot high fence that we can put all around. And the conservation advisory council was like, you know, deer can jump a six foot fence. And then one, uh, congressperson was like, oh yeah, you know, we need to come up with deer uh, contraceptives. So the big joke was deer condoms to stop the the deer population <laughs> and, you know, vehicle strike. Finally, the state of Connecticut, they actually got something right, right? I mean, it's rare that the government gets something right, but uh, they actually said, hey, we need to look at hunting, not as a recreational tool, but as a conservation tool. And they put the, 100%. they drew the line in the sand and they're like, hunters play a valuable role. You may not like the the concept of it, but understand that this deer population is going to be through the roof. You're going to have people dying in car accidents. You're going to have crops damaged if you do not have these hunters that are serving their community. And by the way, if they're not taking the the meat, they're donating it to hunters for the hungry, which I know you've got a, a, a role with that, right? Like uh, Blood Origins talks about, um, you know, the idea of giving game meat to, mm-hmm. to the less mm-hmm. fortunate. Can we talk about that for a hot minute? Yeah, yeah, 100%. One of the projects, so one of the things that we love to do at Blood Origins is a direct conservation project implementation style of 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 conservation projects. We adopted it from Kuyu. We felt like Kuyu was sort of on the cutting edge of this idea that is, let's take the middleman out, let's find great projects around the world, let's fundraise for them, and let's implement them, and then let's storytell the heck out of them. And so one mm-hmm. of the Hunters for the Hungry program that we got involved with was from the, in the state of Wyoming. Wyoming Wildlife Federation runs a Hunters for the Hungry program. And we raised $23,000 for that program in order to process meat uh, to give to less fortunate individuals and communities in the state of Wyoming. And that happens all over the world. Mm-hmm. It happens in South Africa. Every every stitch of meat in most hunting scenarios, and, I'm, and, I'll, and I say most very purposely because Again, when you get to know Blood Origins and who we are, we're very honest and we're very, and again, we're full of integrity. So, yes, when people hunt leopards and lions in Africa, they don't use the meat. Okay. Let's just lay it out there. But everything else, pretty much everything is utilized, and everything is utilized in the camp, is either used for sale of venison. And all goes to the communities and the locals around those areas. Um, and we did a project with a small outfit in Eastern Cape in which they give all of their meat to the local state hostel in which there's kids going to this hostel, this boarding school. And essentially, if you if you went by the state-led program, they would get two to three days of red meat a month. Mm-hmm. Through the outfitter there, they were getting red meat every single day in their diet because of the gay meat that was being donated. And so what we did is we got on board with them during COVID because there's no hunters going in. The only hunters they had were local South African hunters that were built on hunters. And when I, when you hear me say built on, it's not mm-hmm. a cow's tongue. Mm-hmm. It's the version of jerky that is in South Africa. And those guys take all the meat. And so there's no meat to give to the kids. And so we fundraised some money to be able to cull some animals so that those, so that there was still a financial benefit to the outfit, which they're a business. They have to have something. But then that meat was sent straight to the hostel for the kids over the 18-month period where they had no hunters coming in um, during COVID. You know, so the, the meat <clears throat> element is huge. 
You know, there, there's a reason why Mike Lover had us talk. Um, I've actually been to South Africa. I've done a uh, conservation hunt over there where we were tasked with culling animals. And my PH over there uh, was one of the guys through the hunter's care program. And he walked us through the whole process of culling the animals and then processing the animals. And then we actually went to the Amasango career school in Grahamstown and and we donated the meat and it was the craziest thing. And I know you can appreciate this because if the listeners haven't picked up, you've got a very distinct South African accent. Um, (laughs) But it was very interesting because we were, when we were in that school, we actually put the meat inside of the freezers and Number one, there were about four separate security measures to get to that meet. There was more security to get to the meet than there was to get to the student records in the principal's office. Because if the locals in that town had found out that there was red meat in a protein starved nation, it would have been stolen. Mm-hmm. So there was a lock on the freezer, a lock on the cage inside the the office uh, that held the freezer. There was a lock on the door to the principal's office and a lock on the main door. And by the way, a lock on the gate to the school. Um, But it was crazy when we donated that meat, the teacher was like, oh, I want to introduce you to some people. And we're all standing there and we're, you know, dressed in our camouflage or whatever. And, you know, my PH gets up there and he spoke the, uh, the Kosa language, Um, but he was talking to them in English. And these kids are like, oh, whatever, who's this guy, right? Like a lot of middle school kids Mm -hmm. would probably do. But then he just spoke to them in that Kosa language and they were, they were blown away that here's this, yeah, here's the yeah. six, six foot two, you know, Dutch looking, you know, white man. And he speaks our language. How does he know this language inside and out? And he's, he's joking with them and, and they were blown away that this is the guy that puts food in their stomach. So I, I completely agree that these programs, people don't understand. They simply don't get it that, you know, when someone goes to Africa, yeah, every single person that's involved is going to benefit the professional trackers, professional skinners, even the people that are, uh, you know, working like skinning, they're going to take home all of the the gut piles, stuff that we would throw out here in this, in this nation, we would leave behind in the field. They'll boil that. And people are like, mm-hmm. and then the wildest thing, the wildest thing, and maybe I'm highly caffeinated, maybe a little too much of that black ruffle coffee, but, uh, the wildest thing that I saw over there was this meat is just laying out over like a rusty barbed wire fence. And I'm like, are they just going to leave that there? And my guide was like, oh no, they'll eat that in a couple days. And I'm like a couple right. days. It's it for yeah. Right. <laughs> so, huh. so what, what an amazing experience. I love, I love what you're doing. And I, I tell people with hunters for the hungry, like, People are like, oh, well, you know, why are you donating roadkill? And I'm like, okay, hold on. It's not roadkill. Some programs do donate that and there's nothing wrong with it. I've eaten roadkill deer, but when they're like, yeah, but it's, you know, you're, you're donating Bambi. And I'm like, oh my God, would you rather human, Mm -hmm. human suffer, you know, like give them something that's going to be sustainable and nutritious. And I don't know, I could go on and on and on, but. (laughs) Well, one of the things that blood origins is specifically built for is that idea of telling that story, right? As you said, we we don't do a good enough job of explaining what we do. We don't do a good enough job of explaining the benefits and the consequences of the action that is hunting. So for instance, that that hostel school, yes, it was Mm -hmm. good for us to get the money and donate the money for the kids to eat, but it was just as important for us to storytell it beautifully. And so we created a video called The Sun Project and we essentially deconstructed what your typical film of a meat drop would look like. And we started with a food, a plate being put on a table that was 
you know, a, essentially a, a spaghetti bolognese kind of deal. Mm-hmm. And we reversed it all the way to the animal in the field. And when you saw someone walking up to the animal in the field, you thought, oh, this is the hunter coming up to the animal. But instead, it was the lady that was cooking the meal in the hostel saying, this is where the meat that feeds my kids comes from. And then putting it in fast forward and bringing it all the way back to the plate on the table and a young black girl sitting down and eating that meal and smiling. And really, you understand then from sort of feel to plate in a very different, very beautiful story that really encapsulates what we do as hunters. And then you just put it on social media and say, let's show the world what, we, what we're like. And I think that video on Facebook has, you know, 704,000 views. Wow. Already. So. Yeah, that's, that's powerful. I think people have, I mean, we know this, that there's a disconnect, that there are people out there that believe that, you know, chicken comes in a, a perfect package, like in the supermarket. And, you know, when you're cleaning your bird in the field, it's, it's cold, you know, that's what their belief is. Well, it's actually a living creature that was just shot. Right. Um, I don't, I think we need to tell that story of this is the field to table experience. And, you know, when people say, well, hunting is so, you know, inhumane, you ask them, okay, have you ever seen a, a mass, you know, like a, like a pork farm, right? Like a pig farm where, you know, these animals are, are treated very differently than a wild animal, right? The wild animal is put out of its misery very quickly versus, you know, versus an animal that, you know, lives in misery in, in a lot of respects. And I'm not, listen, I'll eat pork, I'll eat beef, I'll eat chicken all day, but I'll just, 100%. I'll just say this, like, I would rather have wild game than store-bought game. Um, mm-hmm. but yeah, that message that yeah. you're talking about is so, so important. Yeah. And the other, the counter also is, you know, have you watched something die in mother nature? Mm. It, it's, it's, it's not, it's not delicate. It's not gentle. It's not romanticized that they fall asleep and they go to, they, they go to sleep and they die. It, mother nature, she's a bitch, man. She's cruel. She's violent. Um, she has no, you know, no qualms about pain. Uh, if you want to associate pain with death, so what hunters do from a from an ethics perspective of making sure that you you know ethically take that animal as quickly and as cleanly as you possibly can um, is also another piece of the puzzle, another piece of the argument that certainly needs to be used uh, more and more. Yeah, you know, one of the arguments that always comes up is, as you mentioned. Uh, well, you know, hunters, you guys are so inhumane, you're, you're killing animals. And as you said, right, well, nature is pretty violent and you ask someone, it's like, okay, would you rather be shot or would you rather be eaten alive? Right. And you can play the, the what if game and people will invariably say, I'd rather just be shot. Right. So (laughs) they kind of walk themselves into that, that path. And you say, listen, if this is about time, it takes a long time for certain animals to be eaten right in the field when they, they get pounced on and legs broken, back broken, whatever, like that's a long, slow death. And especially if a predator is consuming them from their most sensitive areas on, right. They're avoiding any of the natural weapons that these animals have at their head and they're working from the gut. Right. So it's, Mm -hmm. it's interesting when you talk to people, just how very shallow their understanding of something so important in the world is. Um, now, something that it caught my eye and I I just want to talk about it because it's just so it's, it's something else that you do. I want to talk about the anti-poaching and just talk about some of the, 
some of the misconceptions of what anti-poaching is, some of the things that you actually do, some of the, yeah. some of the things that could happen if there aren't anti-poaching efforts. Um, and we'll just, you know, go back and forth and talk about that because I mean, poachers, I mean, they're unethical. Um, you know, in a survival situation where a survival company, we teach poaching methods. I'll, I'll tell you that right now. I'll tell people in our survival two class, I say, look, if your life is on the line, break the law because it's not a law at that point. But if you are out there and you're using a spotlight to jack deer, or if you're using, if you're shooting animals out of season, you are unethical. Now, if your life is on the line and your family's life is on the line, it's a true emergency, totally fine. But let's just talk about how detrimental to the animal population poachers can be. Maybe some of the stuff that you saw here, some of the stuff that you know of, you know, back in South Africa. Sure, sure. I think it's important first and foremost for your audience to define uh, the difference between hunting and poaching. Mm -hmm. I think that every in the in the anti-hunting space, they use the terminology against us a lot. You'll see it misused in articles and magazines and newspapers. They'll they'll say you know poaching led to the decimation, or they'll they'll say hunting in the headline, but it was actually a poaching incident kind of deal. So. Very simple for people, again, from an education perspective, to plant some seeds in the back of your brain for the next time this happens. Poaching is illegal. Hunting is legal. Uh, poaching is indiscriminate, i.e. it takes out anything in its path. It'll take young, old, male, females, indiscriminate. Hunting is very selective, mm -hmm. very discriminant in the animals that it takes. Um, poaching sort of is essentially removes wildlife it rapes and destroys and decreases wildlife populations hunting sustains wildlife populations and that makes complete sense again hunting um typically of animals in africa those animals are an economic asset and any economist or any business owner will tell you that you want your your asset to grow and animals you don't want to just you know take them down to zero because then you can't hunt them anymore um the last thing is that uh, poaching essentially uses wildlife to make money. And I say that very purposely. Hunting, yes, there's money associated with it. And there's, there's, there's money associated with the hunting of an animal. But you're not creating an illegal trade tied to the, the take of that animal itself. So hunting and poaching, very, very different things. Um, and if you want to, if, if that was all too much to put in the back of your brain, just think of it like this. Equating hunting and poaching is the same thing is the same as equating shopping and shoplifting mm -hmm. as the same thing. <clears throat> okay. Yeah. It's kind of like, it's, super simple. it's kind of like when you hear our, our media, they'll say, oh, well, gun violence attributed to the deaths of X number of people. Well, that includes usually in their definition, suicide and gang violence. And when you take out mm. the suicide and the gang violence from that equation of what they're saying, gun violence is the number is surprisingly actually not surprising, very, very low. Um, but when you put in, you know, these suicides and the gang violence, the number is super high. So when you look at hunting and poaching, it's so easy for someone to just let that slide in an argument. And now it's, it's, as it's the same as if you said, I agree with you, if you're not going to correct them in that moment, you know? Right. Right. Exactly. So with that, with that defined, I think one of the most important key things of what poaching does, poaching protects animals and habitat. Okay. People always think that anti-poaching units just 
protect rhinos and elephants and, and planes game. They also protect the habitat, i.e. they stop people uh, gold mining, they stop people taking out hardwood forests, creating coal, that kind of stuff. And so, and habitat is the key component here. So in Africa, hunting outfits protect 1.5 million square kilometers of habitat. That's almost double the area of all national parks combined in Africa. So anti-poaching is essentially like the foundational rock that keeps the habitat intact and keeps the wildlife on those landscapes. The reason that anti-poaching can occur is because the wildlife has value. The wildlife has value. People are willing to come and hunt. They're willing to spend a lot of money. And that money then in turn gets pushed back into the system Mm -hmm. and is able to fund people's jobs or be able to outfit the anti-poaching teams, provide binoculars, equipment, guns, you name it. You cut off hunting. You cut off, you know, in COVID, for instance. COVID shows lots of of data that shows, you know, anti-poaching teams couldn't sustain themselves anymore. People that ran anti-poaching teams couldn't sustain themselves. And there was major, major wildlife crime, major poaching incidences all across Africa because the money just wasn't there. The money wasn't there to to, um, sustain the the anti-poaching units. And here's the sad reality of things is that a lot of the anti-poaching guys had to be let go. Mm-hmm. Well, if you get let go and you have no job anymore, but you know how to, you know where the animals are, you're going to go back to probably what was uh, an earlier gig, which is poaching yourself. Right. So yeah. it's it's a major concern for wildlife. It, 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 it is, the as I said, it's the foundational pillar for wildlife conservation in Africa. I mean, what's some of the, I mean, you know, we, we talk about poaching, I think, in the spirit of, of defining it. I mean, what are some of the common ways that you've seen people like poach? I mean, in the in the Northeast and in a lot of parts of the United States, as I alluded to before, guys will drive around with a spotlight and they'll jack deer. Mm. You know, that's a mm. common strategy, a common tactic. I mean, have you seen not happening in South Africa? That's yeah. not a way that people poach in South Africa. So I'd classify yeah, poaching in two ways. Mm-hmm. Two ways. One is and and probably the most prolific poaching in Africa, and here's where it gets a little gray, Kevin, is the illegal bushmeat trade. Mm -hmm. If you had to tell me, hey, you've got communities out there that are snaring, and snaring is is the biggest, easiest way for them to poach. They just run snare lines and check them, you know, after however many days. And they're snaring just to get meat for the pot. Mm Mm-hmm to sustain themselves because they're protein poor landscapes. Uh, they can't raise cattle in them. I have no problem with that, Kevin. And I think 99% of hunters and outfits in Africa would say the same thing. Right. But when it, when it takes the next level, which is, Oh, I'm going to make money from this. I'm going to sell it into the legal bushmeat trade. Then things escalate. And that's when, um, things need to happen. And so, so I would say 90% of the poaching in Africa, is for the illegal bushmeat trade and Mm -hmm. they do it through snares uh the 10 is the more violent syndicated poaching in which they're going after the um, the one the 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 resources that have greatest value in the eastern market so you're talking rhinos right 
So Kruger National Park has lost 75% of its rhino population in the last 15 years. Um, The latest aerial census, uh, as I understand it, has shown just just despairing rhino numbers. And there's a great group in in Colorado, actually Utah, uh, called Eco Defense Group that are pulling in ex-military guys to train the anti-poaching units. Mm -hmm. But they're realizing they're having to get into the intelligence space too because of the corruption and the lack of money, right? These guys make $1,000 a year, these anti-poaching guys running around the national parks. And the syndicate guy comes to him and goes, I'll give you 1000 bucks to just tell me where the rhinos are right, right, right. now. You know, so it's a difficult scenario. So those, so the, that's how you differentiate poaching in Africa. There's the illegal bushmeat snaring type poaching incidences. And then there's the elevated, syndicated, uh, highly... Um, militarized big weapons mm-hmm. um night vision kind of deals that are going after rhinos specifically they do a little bit of lion for lion bones and obviously elephants but rhino is like the king right now man when i when i was over there the only incident of poaching that i saw was a wildebeest that someone from uh from the town had shot with bird shot and it, the wildebeest died a terrible death. We actually called one of the conservation officers over there and the guy was like, yeah, this thing, it got hit and it, it bled to death, but so slow. Cause I mean, wildebeest is a hardy animal. Um, so, I mean, it, what's wild over there, like you mentioned is just how prolific everything is in terms of like, y- you could be hunting on a concession that's millions of acres and you're technically the only person that's supposed to be on it because you guys keep such good record of it. But, mm-hmm. and if you see anyone else on there, that's probably a poacher, you know, like you have to assume that that other person with a rifle on that land that is so regulated through the dollars and the hunting fund, like you have to assume that person's a poacher, you know? Yeah, so and you probably won't ever see them though, Kevin. That's the mm. thing, right? You're not going to even know they're there. Those anti-poaching guys are going to find just, you know, tracks and spore coming over the fence or a cut fence. Mm-hmm. Um, and then those are the guys that are the ones on the ground that follow up and really track them by spore. Uh, it's, it's pretty impressive what these guys do. Man. So now I'm sure people have been wondering, we've been talking for a while now. I mean, mm-hmm. how did you get involved in all this? I mean, it, you've, you've obviously got a background in hunting, but like, what was the, the, the drive to do this? Like, what was there one moment where you're like, I can't take this anymore. You know, I don't actually have a big background in hunting, Kevin. No. Um, my my family history, I've got a huge history of hunters. My grandfather and my father were were major hunters. My grandfather, he told me that, or he wrote it down, that he lived the two meccas of wildlife paradise that this world had to offer. One was uh, Siberia, the tiger, northern China, Tibet. He lived out in the 20s and 30s. And then he lived the heyday of Africa from the mid-50s all the way to the mid-70s until Mozambique underwent a revolution. And he, you know, I never got any of it. My grand, my father was a, was a teenager in those African days. And by the time we came around, we mm-hmm. lived in a town of eight and a half million people. And my father, my grandfather never talked about elephant hunts and buffalo hunts. And I guess them, I don't know if they, I, I never got the opportunity to ask them the question, but they did they just make a pact to say we don't want to talk about this anymore because it's gone it's raped the wildlife was gone um 
or like these guys are never going to have an opportunity to do what we did. So, I, so my so my background, I just don't have much in hunting. But growing up in South Africa, you know, if you grew up in America, you you know, you want to be a policeman and a fireman and a lawyer, whatever. Right? As a kid, as a, as a you want to be a football player. In South Africa, all young boys want to become our game rangers. Mm. You want to be that guy that drives the Land Rover around and shows all the American tourists, <laughs> you know, all the all the wildlife and. Um, you want to show them all the cool little animals and the cool trees that have medicinal, you know, values that you, you take this, this specific twig or, or leaf and you crush it and you put it on your, on your mouth and it becomes a, an oral anesthetic, you know, mm -hmm. all those kinds of things. And so I trained a lot in that. And I also have a, 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 a science based background, a science based career. I've got a, a bachelor of science in environmental conservation biology and, a master's and PhD in wetland ecology. Um, and so I've just been very, very conservation minded and focused since, since I was a young kid, you know, and when I got to America and finally got the opportunity to hunt and got an opportunity to understand what hunting was and then really dive into the perception issues and the PR issues that hunting has, and at the very same time, I had two young boys that were four and five. And I was asking myself, how do I explain to these boys why I hunt and what hunting does? And I could explain the ecological side of things. Like I could explain why we trap predators for ground nesting birds, for instance, mm -hmm. and quail and turkeys. But the sort of the emotional side, the connectedness of who we are, I couldn't. And so that's why that's where Blood Origins started. Blood Origins started at, as this thing that was I needed to explain your heart, Kevin, our heart, our community's heart, because I needed to explain it to my boys. And from there, it just blossomed into this much, much, much bigger mission, which is all of the things that we've been talking about, all of these truths tied to who we are as hunters. Um, that I don't know why, but why, that the hunting community has forgotten about because I guess the hunting community has been so narrow focused in terms of, you know, showing the kill all the time <clears throat> because that's what, you know, I guess the hunting community loves. Um, and I get it. Don't get me wrong. I'm not disparaging that. Um, but I felt like just in, in terms of messaging, in terms of messaging to the major majority that are non-hunters in this country and in the world that keeps our lifestyle alive, we missed the boat in terms of telling who we are. And so that's, that's where we are today, my man. Wow. <clears throat> so, I mean, it sounds like you're, you're using a scientific background to explain it. Uh, you know, we're, we talked about food, you know, we're explaining how from like a, uh, like a philanthropic perspective we can explain why we need hunting like what other perspectives are out there that we should be aware about or listeners should be using to describe hunting right like there's one explaining this is our history there's the other saying it's for a good cause there's another saying it's for conservation i mean what else is out there for the arguments hey this is why we should be doing it mental physical health mm -hmm. um spirituality, like connecting to something greater than yourself. Um, you, 
it's the only place that people can get away from from this busy world. Now, somebody will say, and again, being honest about it, somebody can say, well, you can still do that. You can just go hiking. <laughs> right. You don't have to kill anything. You can just go. And I said, yes, you can. But there's a much, there's a, there's a huge difference between being an observer of nature and being a participant in nature. Mm-hmm. And the ob- observation part is when you go hiking, you're not really engaging with your surroundings. You're just walking, you're listening, but you have a certain destination. I'm going to get to that mountaintop. I'm going to sit down for a minute or two and I'm going to turn around. I'm going to come back down. That's hiking. But when you're hunting, you're observing so much more. You're looking at sign. You're looking at the wind. You're feeling the wind. You're you're being a part of nature that just does something else for people. It's it's often indescribable, but that's why we do the storytelling we do because everybody's reason for why they hunt is different. Yes, you have these big silos like you just talked about. There's the food silo, the conservation silo, the mental, physical health silo. And there's the recreation silo too. Let's not forget about that. That's something we shouldn't be apologizing for. Right. And we shouldn't shy away from because that is hunting is a recreational tool. Um, but there's, there's so many, all of those. And then there's the adventure side of things. When you start traveling for hunting, there's all these elements that just spider web together that it's very, you know, a lot of people, I don't think who are listening to this, that may be hunters. I don't think they've spent enough time crafting their elevator pitch. That is, if you sat in the elevator and anti-hunter walked in or non-hunter, they say, oh, what are you? And you had to classify yourself. You say, I'm a hunter. They're like, oh, why do you hunt? Do you have an answer for when someone asks you why you hunt? And your answer can't be because I like to kill shit. <laughs> right, right. And if you did say that, I would, I would actually call you on it. Mm-hmm. Because I don't believe that's true. That may be a very macho response. But if that was actually true, then you wouldn't be a hunter. You'd be volunteering at the local abattoir or chicken farm and -hmm. killing anything you wanted, anytime you wanted, as much as you wanted. Yeah, I'll tell you, the the idea of hiking versus hunting, I've met a lot of hunters that can become pretty good hikers, but I've met a lot of hikers that can never be hunters. You know what I mean? Like they, (laughs) they just don't have it. And you know, the, the, I think what's, what's really powerful too, uh, something to, to just chew on, you know, for anyone that's listening is that, uh, you know, you, when you have that destination track, when you do stuff with, with your tools that, you know, we, we put up on a pedestal, right? Like, like I, I'm guilty of it too. Like I, I collect knives, I collect firearms, but I also like having a history with certain items that I've carried with me. Like, Oh, I carried that over to South Africa or I carried that rifle to Alaska. You know, like, I think that's another element too. It's like, you're, you're building a legacy through, through a tool. Um, but there, there's so many different reasons for it. Um, and I think what we need to do getting back to the very beginning of this podcast is we need to elevate our understanding, elevate the the discussion of hunting. And we, we should get away from talking in, in bumper stickers, you know, like I, I've met a lot of guys that, that like shooting off one liners and it's like, okay, that's great. But can we take a, a couple steps further or a few levels deeper than just saying, you know, if it's Brown, it's down. It's like, okay, great. That's great. Mm-hmm. You know, um, 
Now we're, we're drawn towards the end of this podcast. Um, you know, and I'm sure there's a lot of little questions out there. Um, you know, there, there's so many things that I'm sure people are just curious about. First one I have for you is you're in Minnesota, right? No, I'm in Mississippi. Mississippi. You okay. Tell from, you can't tell from my accent. Oh yeah. You know, you, you run across a lot of South Africans that have Southern draws at the same time. <laughs> uh, what, what brought you to Mississippi? Uh, I came to do a PhD. I, um, oh, okay. I, I came to do a PhD and, uh, back in the day when I came it was 2002 and it was Google hadn't even come onto the scene yet. It was yahoo.com and it was these bullet points of yahoo.com. And if you remember, there was like entertainment and games and one yes. of the bullet points was colleges and universities. And I clicked on colleges and universities It come up all the States of America and I'd started a, and quickly realized that there were hundreds of options in every state. <laughs> yeah. And I would just go to the University of the State first. And I got through down to M and went to the University of Mississippi. And I would go to the Department of Biology or Environmental Science or Environmental Engineering and see if I recognized any of the academics or the professors that were in the department. And lo and behold, there was someone at Ole Miss that I knew very well from her work and what her work had done for my work as a master's student. And I sent her a very specific email and 20, oh, 18 months later, I arrived in Oxford, Mississippi from South Africa in 2003. Wow. And never left. Wow. So you're technically Dr. Robbie Kroger. Yeah, I'm, I'm Dr. Robbie Kroger. Oh. My wife is Dr. Lisa Kroger. She has a, a PhD in 18th century Gothic literature. Oh. Uh, she is way smarter than I am. <laughs> and, uh, yeah, that's how I got here. That's how I got to Mississippi. And as I said, we've got two small boys that definitely have Mississippi accents that I catch myself looking at the littlest one going, what did you just say? Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, man. Wow. So you're in Mississippi. You've been here since 2000. You've been here since 2003. Um, yep. Is there one South African product that Americans should be aware of that isn't over here in the market yet? You mentioned Biltong. I love Biltong. Um I actually made my yes. own Biltong like uh, dryer and it came out great. So you guys should figure out oh, how to make fantastic. Biltong. But like, what's what's one South African product that you'd be like, you got to get that here? So people don't actually understand what true ketchup is <laughs> until you have tomato sauce. There is a, our tomato sauce in South Africa is called all gold tomato sauce. And when you have it, you will never go back to Heinz ketchup again. Okay. I'm just going to leave it at that. Um, favorite South African in history. Is it Charlize Theron? No, Nelson Mandela. Nelson Mandela. So Nelson you- Mandela, the guy who was imprisoned for being mm-hmm. a part of the opposition party. And after 26 years of being in prison, came out of jail and everybody, Kevin, you, me, most people would have said, I want revenge. Mm-hmm. And instead he said, no, I want the best for my country. Wow. And, the, and his quote he uses that I have on the bottom of my, of my signature for everything I do is the quote that I live by. And he said it, and it's a very good one. He says, everything is impossible until it gets done. Yeah. Powerful prophet right there. Right. Prophet of nonviolence. Um, Mm -hmm. especially since he lived through the apartheid, right? I mean, he, exactly. um, wow, man, I was going to ask you like three other, just kind of 
inconsequential questions. And now I feel like, <laughs> like after that one, I feel kind of like, damn, you know, here I, here I go off being like, oh yeah, you know, favorite South African, Charlie Theron, you know, Hollywood type that probably yeah. is anti. And you hit me with the, the Nelson Mandela. Damn, man. Why'd you do that to me, Robbie? Um, well, how about this? What did we not cover that the listener should know before we, we say goodbye? Like, like, is there a, a parting sure. message that you want to, you want to leave them? Sure. With? You know, we're a nonprofit and if you know blood origins or if you dig into blood origins, what you will find is that we are probably the most, we are the only positive PR campaign out there for hunting right now. And we are the most persistent campaign for PR around PR for hunting that there is day in and day out. We feel like we're a Sisyphus putting our shoulder behind the stone every single day and we push it up the mountain and the next day the stone is right back down the mountain, but it's just a little closer to the top. And in order for us to continue to do what we do, um, we need support and support comes in donations. We have a supporters program that for the cost of a cup of coffee a month, you can get involved with three bucks, four bucks, five bucks a month. Uh, you'll be entered into a bunch of sweepstakes every month. So it's not like you're just doing it out the goodness of your heart. We wish that you would. Uh, but you can win a bunch of stuff as well. And then if there's any companies or brands out there, we've built a conservation club, which essentially is the same thing as the supporters programs and monetary donation, but you're just standing next to us and saying, we love what you do. We want you to keep fighting for us. We want you to be our voice and um, go do what you do every single day. So if you have means, if, uh, if you want to just check us out and, um, you know, and if you can't, the next best thing is tag us in anything and everything. Share our content because all you're doing every time you share content, and, and it doesn't have to be our content, it can be anybody's content that is good hunting content that has good message, good education tied to it. Because what you're doing is every time you share it, you're sharing it into your spheres that have non-hunters that are engaging in it. And that's what we need to do. We need to be zealots in terms of sharing content. Man, there you have it, guys. Uh, Dr. Robbie Kroger, Blood Origins. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, I, I definitely enjoyed this one. You know, I've, I've struggled through a few podcasts with a few guests where I'm like, how am I going to make this connection? But what you're doing is really powerful. I, I thank you for what you're doing because you're keeping my pastime, my, my, one of my favorite things to do in the great outdoors alive. So I'm sure there's a lot of folks out there that want to thank you as well. Um, Hopefully we'll be able to share a fire, maybe some biltong, uh, or is it a braai? It's a braai when you put it over. No, we're gonna do a we're gonna do a braai, and we're oh, gonna yeah. have some all gold tomato sauce, <laughs> and uh, we can have some good American beer with it. All right. Sounds good. All right, guys. I'm Kevin Asello, Fieldcraft Survival. Thank you so much for listening to this podcast. Catch you next time. Mm-hmm.